Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast and Jessica Fletcher's favorite. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm your other co-host, TJ West. And today we are talking about season two, episode seven, A Lady in the Lake. Okay, Teach, you're up for giving us a summary. All right. Well, in this week's episode, Jessica goes to a lovely inn in the middle of nowhere, Maine, apparently, uh, where she seems to witness a murder taking place on a boat where a wealthy man seemingly drowns his wife. But as it turns out, things get a little complicated when the circumstances of her death are a little more mysterious than we thought at first. Because as it seems, as it turns out, thanks to Seth, who our beloved Seth is in this episode, she has mud in her lungs, which suggests that she was drowned in such a way that she was under the, the bottom of the lake rather than just on the top. It's a whole big thing. You're getting, yeah, it's getting complicated. Uh, it is complicated. It is a remarkably complicated episode, but the resolution is remarkably not complicated. Uh, because as it turns out, the rich man's cousin, played by none other than William Christopher of Mash, was the Father one. Mulcahy. Father Mulcahy. Father Mulcahy is the one who did it to get revenge on the rich man who was his cousin, which is the big revelation. So Okay, so I actually thought that the murder and the plot and the investigation is incredibly simplistic. And I'm I'm struggling because I'm having one of those, like, is this actually so obvious or have you just seen the episode ten times? you know, moments um, that come up from time to time because I've seen the series too much. Right. But to me, it seems like the whole situation is just so glaringly obvious from the beginning. But actually, that's kind of why I like it. Mm -hmm. I like that it's not convoluted and I like that it's like just very straightforward. Right. I guess I just meant that like, you know, it's it's it seems more complicated than I think it actually ends up being just mm -hmm. because it's unclear, like, at first what Jessica actually saw, which is kind of the premise of the whole thing. Because, you know, when Jessica goes to the... Yeah, because JB witnesses right, and this then everyone murder. believes that that's what, since that's what she saw, that that's what must have happened. In fact, Amos, who it's his jurisdiction, so we can't be that far away from Cabot Cove... Uh, Amos even says a couple of times, like, why don't, you know, he kind of intimates he doesn't really plan on doing much investigation because he has an unimpeachable witness. What Jessica saw is fine, right? Jessica knows what she right. saw. So I agree with you that it's simple. It just seems complicated at first blush. Okay. Well, where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about the murder and the plot? Or do you want to talk about guest stars? Or do you want to talk about fashion? Well, let's do the murder plot. Because I think actually in order for okay. the, the guest star, which of course, Father Mulcahy is the is the big highlight for me. And as I suspect, oh, what? We're going to disagree? Well, I mean, he is a big highlight. And it's like great because we all know him as Father Mulcahy. And then he is, of course, playing like, at first glance, he seems like this very nice school teacher, bird watcher. Right. And actually, he's, like, this totally sinister murderer, which is, like, awesome, right? Because it's Father Mulcahy. Right. It's truly a monster. Like, he's one of the more monstrous murderers that we've seen just because of how he goes about it. So, of course, you know, the whole premise is that he is the cousin of a millionaire who was basically disinherited whenever the millionaire's father basically stole the company from Father Mulcahy's character's father. So it's a whole big family drama thing. And right. so that is what gives him the motive to have an affair with said millionaire's wife, which is the, the Howard's, Howard's wife. Howard's wife, Thank Carolyn. You. I didn't want to look it up. I was, I, was in the, I was on a roll, so I was just trying to go with it. So he <laughs> has an affair with Carolyn and then murders her dependent on Howard. Yes, which is kind of a complicated thing because he says very clearly at the end of the episode, like, 
the whole point was to pin Carolyn's murder on Howard so that he could inherit. Right. Because he's very upset that his father was cut out of the sale of the company and that his his branch of the family has been cut out of any inheritance. But I guess that left me with a question because wouldn't it just be easier to kill Howard? <laughs> kill Howard and marry Carolyn and then you get all of Howard's money. But if you kill Carolyn and pin it on Howard, Howard is still alive. So I'm confused about how he will inherit. Yes, I too was also confused about that. Um, particularly because, then you know, but what's part of makes his motivation so sinister? He's like, well, she had to die. Like, <laughs> yeah, like the way he. I mean, say what you will about how maybe nonsensical the murder plot may end up being in itself. Like the motivation, what makes it work at least is William Christopher's commitment to the role and the way that he combines that sort of very kind and earnest sweetness that we associate with Father Mulcahy but then just was like he just has such a wide-eyed way of delivering the line like she had to die oh she was so disposable to him which is just horrifying because in the first scene that we see the three of them um Howard is this really abusive dick yes he's yelling at Carolyn he's nasty um and you get this sense that, like, Carolyn is just really kind of broken down as a woman. And so the idea that she would be involved in an affair with Burton, Father Mulcahy, William Christopher's character, um, it's, it's like, totally obvious, right? He's sensitive. He's a bird watcher. He's kind. Like, of course she would fall for him when she's being mistreated by her husband. And so Carolyn actually set up this incident where they'd go out in the rowboat and she'd pretend to drown. And we we learn later she's a really strong swimmer. She has medals in swimming. Her husband can't swim. So this is the perfect way for her to set up, you know, staging her own death. So it'll look like she drowned and she's hidden scuba gear and she uses it to actually get across the water where he can't see her swimming. And she thinks that she's coming out of the water to greet her lover, Burton, and they will start this new life together, freed from Howard. And instead... She comes out of the water and Burton immediately murders her. With binoculars, by the way. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, when it comes to blunt murder weapons, like, Jesus, like, bashing her to death and then drowning her with a pair of binoculars is pretty effed up, even by murder she wrote. Yeah. <laughs> like, because that, because part of what reveals the, the reality is that Seth finds shards of glass in her head, which could not have come from the bottom of the boat, but had to come from something else, which is what leads Jessica. Someone to- hitting her, and that's why she drowned. Right, and Jessica's like, ah, yes, binoculars, and so. But that's pretty messed up, right? To get clubbed to death, and then, it's you know, ha- just holds her head down in the water. Which just makes me so sad for her, because this poor woman is, like, married to this asshole, and she thinks she's getting free of it, you know? And instead, actually, the real asshole was her lover. And her husband, he mistreats her, absolutely. But the more we kind of learn about him, the more he's not really that bad. TJ will now roll his eyes and say that I'm a bleeding heart because we literally just had the same conversation about people we know in real life who I'm like, they're not that bad. They just have problems. And he's like, oh, my God, stop saying that everyone is a good person. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, Howard's like, what, a 50, 60-year-old adult? By this point in his life, he needs to put his trauma – and he's going to see a therapist. He literally has no excuse to continue being a monster to his wife and, like, to tear her down. Yeah, well, I think he's just a monster because he's, like, a rich jerk, but he – Definitely has some claustrophobia. He's afraid of swimming. He has like some he has yes. some issues. And more importantly, he didn't actually hurt anyone. Well, not physically. I mean, he emotionally tortured his wife. So, I mean, in a different yeah. Murder, She Wrote episode, he would be the murder victim. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, the other, the fun piece of this that we haven't talked about is how Burton set it all up. 
So right. obviously it was his idea to have Carolyn stage her death. And then he also asks JB, he runs into her at the beginning and he says, oh, we used to know each other back at school teacher conference. We don't know if that's even actually true because she doesn't remember him. So that could right. be just a ruse. Um, and so he's like, oh, since we're friends, you know, let's go bird watching in the morning together. And so he orchestrates it so that the two of them will go out bird watching and conveniently have binoculars and be there by the lake to see Carolyn drown. Um, and that it'll look in such a way because she's flailing her arms and her husband's trying to catch her. It looks like he's pushing her into the water. So Jessica, that's how Jessica sort of witnesses the whole thing. But it's so transparent because Burton's like, let's take binoculars. Let's go by the lake. And then he's like, you go that way. I'll go this way. Let's separate. Right. <laughs> it's all very staged. Yes. But I mean, I will, like I said, I will give a lot of credit to William Christopher for his ability to sort of own the role. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. there is a certain way. I mean, I'd seen this episode before, so I knew he was the murderer. But now looking back on it, like, that's what makes him such a brilliant murder, perfect, like, murderer is that one wouldn't expect the person to play it who played Bother Mulcahy for, like, yeah. what, a decade almost? Yeah. Like, between MASH and after MASH, yeah. you know, to be someone so cold and ruthless. So I really give a lot of well, credit. Well, and, he, and to, then like, he, he, doesn't present that way. He doesn't present as ruthless. Right. He presents as like incredibly kind and with all this like sinister stuff underneath the surface. And that is like just wonderful because he feels like Father Mulcahy at first. Yeah. And I, I just I, I think that's a, a, a real testament to Christopher's skill as an actor is that he's so able and willing to work with his established sort of star persona, but to undercut it. And that's, I think that for me, at least that's what makes the episode yeah. work is just how well he manages to accomplish that. So I'm willing to forgive pretty much everything else. Well, now that we're talking about William Christopher, let's talk about some of the other people in the episode, because we've talked about Howard, the jerk, and he's played by Lawrence Luckinbill. Um, which people probably know from lots of things. But of course, for me, he will always be the straight guy who turns into a gay guy in The Boys in the Band. Oh, yes. Yes. I mm -hmm. thought he looked familiar. I absolutely love him. I totally respect him for being in that movie. And by the way, he is one of only four of the nine cast members to survive the AIDS epidemic. So uh, a bunch of them were still alive when this episode was made, but they wouldn't last um, into the 90s. So it's kind of a big That's deal. That's true. But I love him, and I think he does a great job playing yep. like a total jerk in this. Yeah, and he's still alive. Um, and then we have um, – we haven't talked about the proprietor of the Stone Lake Resort, which is um, played by Lee Merriweather. Right. Who is one of my favorite Catwomans. Um, she was Catwoman in the Batman 1966 movie, not – the series that was of course oh, of course that's that that's eartha kid of course uh and did you really think eartha kit was better as catwoman than julie newmar i'm gonna be so sad if you did uh obviously i worship at the altar of eartha kit so. <laughs> julie newmar is the defining catwoman okay and um, people were actually really angry that Lee Merriweather was her and was played Catwoman in the movie. But um, Adam West said such lovely things about her. And apparently, like, she felt so awkward because it was all the people from the TV show, right? And they'd all knew each other. Um, and she was like the intruder on that little gang. And she felt so awkward being like the new person that apparently Cesar Romero would like take her to movies and try to make her feel like part of the group. Isn't that sweet? That is, I mean, he, you know, he was a gay man. So, of course, he would do that. Like, so we have had him in an episode, too, and now her, so. Yeah. Well, that seems like a nice little bit of parity. 
Yeah, I love 1966 Adam West Batman. Okay, then we also have a uh, we have a little bit of our favorite Cabot Cover Harry played by John Aston yep. in this. I lo- I just love John Aston. He is just he he makes me happy whenever I see him on screen. Like <laughs> just because he oh he plays he's just I don't know. There's just something about his persona that I just find absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. Well, I like this because the last time we saw him, you know, he was the one who schemed to get the condo development going um, by sneaking in a vote when there wasn't a quorum at the town hall. And so we already got to see him as like a shady business guy. And in this one, he's a little less shady, but still kind of gross. Like, yeah, he's always trying to sell something. Like there's been this murder at this resort that he owns and Lee Merriweather's character is renting and running, um, but he actually owns it. And once there's a murder, he's like, oh, this is going to be great for business. I mean, he's such a shyster, <laughs> right? Like he's just the – he is the, the ultimate shyster. It's kind of interesting because we didn't actually even need him in this episode. No. It's kind of interesting they chose to put him in. The narrative could have totally held without him. Right. He's a nice little grace note that they like to put in sometimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's your little grace note that you like to sneak into our podcast. I was trying. I was trying to think. When can I sneak this in? It's got to. <laughs> and you gave me the perfect opportunity. Um, I thought we weren't going to continue that into season two. Oh, I, maybe you remember. Didn't think, maybe we you talked did. about that. We might have, but I think I've done it literally every episode of season two so far. So no, you missed one. Oh shucks. Well, because we were going to have a trivia question about it. Oh well. I'm back on and my game. I was game. sort of hoping that you would have forgotten, you know, and then you'd let go of it. It's my brand, Bridget. We have a brand I'm up to uphold. <laughs> I just feel like a branding. brand should be something we agree on. Well, you have the choice to agree, so. <laughs> um, I don't agree. Okay, so anyway, we also have Seth and Amos in this, which is really funny. Like, at one point, we see a sign that says Cabot Cove is 10 miles away, but I think we're intended to believe they've already been driving for a bit when they see that. So Mm. it's not really clear how far Stone Lake is from Cabot Cove, but it obviously must be the same county because Amos is the one investigating the murder. And then Seth gets called to do the autopsy, so he must be the nearest doctor? That's weird to me. That is a bit weird. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is, I have to admit, this is one of those episodes where I get increasingly annoyed with Amos the longer the episode goes away. Because <laughs> a little bit of Amos, in my humble opinion, goes a very long way. Just because he's so stubborn about every. I mean, sometimes, like, that works really well, particularly in, like, the Cabot Cove episodes where he's kind of uh-huh. like the local color. Like, I find that uh-huh. works much well, better. But when we're outside of the environs, when he's not sort of softened by the other wacky and sort of unusual denizens of Cabot Cove I'm just like oh my god Amos like we get it like you're you're stubbornly resisting everything Jessica is putting in your way could you just shut up and let her do her thing like honestly so I found it to be a bit grating after a while yeah because pretty much mostly what happens in this episode is just him and Jessica arguing like any scene that he's in it's him and Jessica arguing over the murder because even though she witnessed uh, what seemed like Carolyn's drowning at the hands of Howard, she does not believe that was what really happened. And in fact, like halfway through the episode, she gets it was a stage dash very quickly. Right. So she's basically just fighting with him. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. She's like, Amos, no, we have to investigate. That's kind of their whole shtick. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's nice in moderation because it's obviously the kind of rapport they already have. But it, like I said, it can get a little bit annoying, quite frankly. It also just makes you wonder how he holds on to his job because he's clearly not very he's good. He's also at willing it. to just sort of like put people in prison <laughs> even when all evidence to the to the contrary. It's like 
That's yeah. kind of messed up in this. In, in that's super messed up in today's climate. We don't like that very much. Yeah, it's like come on now. There's one scene where um, Amos and JB are arguing over like the motive that Howard might have had. Because it doesn't make sense, you know, like, why right. would he, if he couldn't swim and his wife was a good swimmer, like, why on earth would he take her out in a rowboat and try to drown her? And Jessica's like, this just doesn't make sense. And they're fighting and, like, Seth is there and he's just finally, like, interrupts and is like, well, Jess, come on, I'll drive you home. And I love this moment because it's like, you can, you can, do you just get the sense that this is something that happens frequently among the three of them? Mm-hmm. And Seth is like, enough, you guys. But also, like. It's one of these moments where I think we see Seth doing his, like, little jealous thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want you spending time with Amos. I want you with me. I'm better. I, I'm not stupid, you know? And it, it just – you get this really rich dynamic among the three of them. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason I identify more thoroughly with Seth than I do with Amos. Like, because he's an intrusive, jealous, queer guy? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. <laughs> You are very intrusive and jealous, aren't you? Oh, <laughs> listeners, don't let her don't let her pin all the jealousy in this relationship on me. Because let me tell you, I am not the only one who is. It's jealous a mutually of this dependent relationship. Okay. It is. A, one might even go so far as to say it's a co-dependent relationship. <laughs> but we should also, for people who didn't know, we established that in our headcanon, Seth is gay uh, way back before Seth even made his appearance in an earlier episode of. The Cabot Cove Gazette, TJ and I established that Seth is gay. And so we will now be operating with that presumption for the re- remaining 11 seasons, right, TJ? That is correct. <laughs> I mean, he is, and the, in the parlance of the time, is an established, bat- or confirmed bachelor. Like, that is usually part, you know, code for queer. They're, they're, they were flirting with the idea that he could be a romantic interest for Jessica. And we'll see that, especially at the end of season five. Um mm. There's like this um, sort of big episode at the end of season five that because the show didn't know if it was even going to go on. Um, but, you know, Lansbury always wanted Jessica to be solo because she felt like right. that was really important to establish her as like this strong woman. And especially to make sense narratively that she could travel around and she wasn't shackled to anybody or anything. And um, I think all that does is just, yeah, it just makes Seth seem gay then. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, once you think about it that way, you can't not think about it that way. It's just so obvious. So there's also this side plot where um, Lee Merriweather's character, Grace, has, I just called him Resort Hunk. I actually don't even know what his character name was. There was, like, Resort Hunk, who's responsible for, like, maintaining the ground. Jack, thank you. (laughs) Maintaining the grounds and um, the boats and things like that. And he's having an affair with another guest who is also married and that's our red herring plot Mm because we're supposed to we learn that he frequently gets involved with married women and so could he possibly have gotten involved with carolyn um he's also apparently on the run from the law for blackmailing these married women but there's an even more further complication which is that he is the the brother of the propri- or the, the woman who's running the inn. Well, I already said that, but uh, yeah, the episode sets that up as a surprise because right. we see her peeking around. Her poor mm. Lee Merriweather. Her character doesn't get to do much. <laughs> like all she does is like look out windows sinisterly and like spy on people. Yeah, it's very you know. I mean, it, it's keep in keeping with the Edgar Allan Poe ethos that sort of you know. At the beginning. Yeah. 
So um, we're supposed to think that maybe she's just really jealous and that she's in love with Resort Hunk and doesn't want him flirting with other women. But then it turns out like, no, it's actually her brother and she's trying to keep him out of trouble. Right. Which is, you know, fine. So you've mentioned the Edgar Allan Poe ethos. We should yes. talk about that because we didn't we didn't explain that. Right. So as it turns out, the this inn has been has had its fair share of famous guests, of whom Edgar Allan Poe is the most famous, who has like a portrait hanging up in the, the main room. Which I thought was a cute little, you know, I can't use grace note because I already said that. So No, it's not even, you, have, you just used that word and it's not even like when it's supposed to be used. I'll be the judge of when it's supposed to be used. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's not what a grace note means. Anyway. Anyway, we don't even know that Edgar Allan Poe actually stayed here. That's just something Harry says. Right. And as Jessica points out, like, this is a pretty new looking building. And he's like, oh, that's the old one burned to the ground. He stayed at that one. This could all just be, like, totally made up. Right. But also, who's like, uh, I would also point out, like, why would Edgar Allan Poe be in Maine, of all places? Like, Right? It's like, you know, it's it just seemed rather... He vacationed there. I guess. I'm just not sure that, you know, someone like Poe would, would vacation. Why would he go to Maine? It yeah. was just an interesting, like, as, you know, conceit, let's put it that way. It like, is. It is. And in fact, like, the final shot of the episode is his portrait falling off the mantle of falling to the ground. Right. And Jessica pops back. She hears the crash and she pops back into the front door and looks and gasps shocked. And that's our final freeze frame. So there's some fun sticks with the Edgar Allan Poe, which I think is supposed to add to this sense of like, even though the episode is takes place mostly in the daytime, in the sunshine with high key lighting, you know, it's a very bright episode aesthetically, but I think it's supposed to have these sort of dark gothic themes. And mm. I think that's why we're nodding to Poe, right? And we open with a lot of like peeking out the windows and spying. And like, there's just a sense of sort of gothic sinisterness about this place. Right. Which I think might have, like, would have landed a little better if we'd gotten more of a sense of the family dynamics that come out. Like, because there's only just a sort of one reference when Howard refers to it to, to an uncle who's, and then, you know, um, his cousin. But that doesn't really come into play until the very end when we learn the truth. So I don't know. It would have landed a lot more effectively if that particular storyline, I think, had been developed to a greater extent. If we had learned mm-hmm. more about the family dynamics. If it wasn't just in a, you know, an isolated inn in the middle of Maine. So you'd prefer if, like, if we learned that actually Howard and Carolyn were, like, brother and sister and they were the last in the family line and... Yeah, or, so, or even if all the people <laughs> in the inn except Jessica had been related to one another. Like and after, after of, Burton killed Carolyn, he buried, you know, her still beating heart or something. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's not a lot of, like, there's not a lot of people being buried for this supposedly being an homage to Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> like, you know, I think we need a little bit more of, you know... <laughs> immurement entombment if we're gonna be a, an Edgar that's Allen true Poe-esque. because we have the telltale heart and then we have like um the casco Montiato. i was just gonna say yeah or even the raven like i mean we have bird watching but we you know burton doesn't see any ra- any ravens so i'm not like it's there's not there's no ravens no but it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that he had an affair well it was a lake it wasn't the sea Close enough. Body I was going to do Annabelle Lee, but it doesn't work. Large body of water. Close enough. Okay, listen. The other thing we should talk about is the episode's title, mm. which is obviously a reference to the Raymond Chandler book, Lady in the Lake, which became a movie in, what, 45? Yeah, sometime in that, yeah. And for people who don't know, it's a really famous movie because it's one of few, and it was the first at the time, um, to try to take an entirely first-person point of view with the camera. 
So much like a contemporary video game where you're like walking through things and shooting at things, we call those first-person shooter video games, um, this movie, actually, the camera is the character. And so you're, you don't even see the character except like if you pass a mirror or something. So you are the character, um, which is not how most movies are made. So it's kind of a famous example historically, although not really well-respected because it doesn't work very well. Nope, it's very alienating to watch, I will tell you that, having seen it, or seen parts of it. It's 46, by the way. Um, it's very strange to watch. Yeah. Because sometimes there are a few moments when the hands come out into the camera, yeah. as if, as you say, it's in a video game, and it's just like, ooh. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, even in a genre like film noir, which is known for its playing with, you know, various established conventions of what film should look like, it's still very alienating. I can imagine all more so in the 40s when it's just like, what in the world? Yeah, yeah. But a cool experiment cinematically. But I don't think that the episode really is doing much more than taking its title. Because, you know, film noir is all about like, just this sort of amoral universe. And we always have the femme fatale. And in Lady in the Lakes plot is kind of convoluted. There's lots of mistaken identities. And we don't really have any of that in this. Like the women in this are actually good women. It's just like one right. bad dude, basically. So yeah, I mean, it's to, there were I mean to, there were also hints of like um, uh, leave her to heaven, like with Jean Tierney, because there's also a scene where she's out on a lake and it has and someone drowns. Like there's the whole thing. Mm, tell me more about that. Um, it's one of the very few color film noirs, actually, um, and it has Jean Tierney as this very jealous wife who basically murders her husband's younger brother when he's out swimming and, you know, he starts drowning and she doesn't do anything to help him. And so she's just sort of sitting in the boat on the lake watching him drown. A lake that looks very similar to this one, I suspect, because it may very well be, you know, one of the California lakes that they're always filming shit on in California. So it's like, mm, I could see some, you know, similarities to films like that. Speaking of lakes, um, the whole idea that Jessica's at this resort is because she's using it for a week-long writing retreat. And I just got to say, like, I'm immensely jealous of that. I want to go away to a cabin mm-hmm. for a week and do nothing but write. And, and solve a murder while you're at it. Um, also, like, I guess Michigan has really spoiled me because we have – there's, like, literally a lake every 10 steps where I live – um, and so they're doing these opening shots of this lake and kind of panning around and this is natural beauty. And I was just kind of like, oh, this isn't very impressive. Like, I actually think the Cabot Cove coastline is much more stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, why would Jessica come here for like the beauty of a retreat? But I might be just spoiled by where I live. Maybe she's just getting away from the hustle and bustle of Cabot Cove. <laughs> <laughs> she just needs to get away from Loretta's beauty parlor and all the gossip for a while. Yeah. It's getting in the way of her writing. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to go on a week-long writing retreat, though, T. Do you want to go on one with me? Obviously. <laughs> do you think we we'd actually we ha- write, or do we, we just end up, like, talking the whole time? Well, I mean, I would say it'd be 75% talking and 25% <laughs> writing. <laughs> we, Teach and I stayed at a hotel room together once for a conference, and our friend came and was just, like, hanging out with us in our room and was like, Oh my God, like you guys don't ever shut up. Like another time we uh, rented a house with a bunch of friends, but it only had three bedrooms. And we were like, we're going to just need to be in a bedroom together. Just yep. trust us. We'll be talking all night long. Nobody wants us to be in separate bedrooms. It's true. <laughs> and we did, right? Remember that? I do. 
I mean, this is why the Cabot Cove Gazette works. This is what people tune into for this high quality banter. Everybody was like, we got to go to bed. And you and I were like, talk until dawn. It's like, what, two o'clock in the morning? It's like, we still have like five more things to talk about. I'm like, <laughs> and that was when it only had, this is the best part, you guys. It only had one bed and one air mattress. And I was like, no, I'm getting the bed. You're taking the air yes, mattress. She like, does, this she not even a question. It. And his air mattress was like deflating in the middle of the- <laughs> Yep, that's, that's about par for the course. I remember I'd wake up and I'd hear this whirring sound and you were like, sorry, I was sleeping on the ground. I had to try to reflate my mattress. Yep, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> that was such a fun weekend. It was. <laughs> All right, what else do we need to say about this episode? I think that's it, isn't it? I mean, we're about we're right about at time, so. I love this episode. I think it's just, it's really simplistic. I think, as I said before, to me, the solution is screamingly obvious from the beginning. Um, but maybe because I'm a seasoned viewer, um, but it doesn't matter to me. It's one of those episodes that I just really enjoy anyway. Yeah, it's good. I really, I really liked it too. Yeah. Okay. Well then we can be done. All right. So next week we're going to talk about horse racing. So that's going to be a whole thing. Yeah. Be prepared for a soapbox. I feel like that was a criticism toward me. Am I the one who's going to be on a soapbox? I mean, I will be too, but you're definitely the more vociferous in your opinions about these things than I am. About not liking horse racing? Yeah. 100%. I'm going to go there. Okay. So you you guys have that to look forward to. But for now, I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.